Hello. Welcome to Index for Continuance. Um, we are a podcast of the CSU Poetry Center. Uh, there's two of us here. Hi. And we're going to introduce ourselves. I'm Hillary Plum. I'm Associate Director of the Cleveland State University Poetry Center. I also am an editor with Rescue Press, where I co-edit the Open Prose series with Zach Savage. And I've worked in independent and academic book and journal publishing since 2004 um, with a focus on small presses. And I've published four, about to be five books of my own also on small presses. So that is the background that brings me to this podcast. Cool. Congrats. (laughs) Five books and and for being here. Um, Hi, I'm Zach Peckham. I'm the managing editor of the CSU Poetry Center. Um, I haven't been working in, in, uh, publishing like very long. I don't, I don't think of it that way. Uh, cause I think it's true, but yeah, I'm the managing editor of the CSU Poetry Center. I'm also the editor in chief of the Cleveland Review of Books. Um, I worked with the CSU Poetry Center as a graduate student, um, just as a grad assistant for three years while I was doing the MFA here at Cleveland State which was sort of my first exposure to the university-adjacent world of small press publishing, and I am still learning it, I guess. I'm working in it. Uh, I'm interested in it. Uh, I haven't published any books. Uh, yeah. Cool. We are uh, we're recording this here at Cleveland State. Um, if you're in Cleveland, we're on the 18th floor of the big skyscraper that says CSU on it. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about what this podcast is, and then we're going to introduce you to our first guest. Yes. So we also want to add, we're here at the CSU Poetry Center, but CSU is not responsible for anything that we say. They have no idea, <laughs> and they don't want to. Um, unless, you know, if they want to be, they they can reach out. You're right. Uh, you speak for them. They can, yeah. Hi. So... We made this podcast um, in part to serve as a resource uh, for people interested in small press publishing or any kind of DIY literary project. Um, we are both like have been teachers and students of editing and publishing and think a lot about what kinds of materials um, are useful in that work and what sort of archives um, could be useful for the future of small press publishing. Um, We're going to talk to editors, publishers, critics, writers, scholars, organizers, lots of people involved in indie, small press, DIY, community-oriented literary and cultural work. Um, And as you'll... As you'll... Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Should I just keep going? Yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Some of the topics we're going to talk about, and we'll get into actually a bunch of these in this first episode, are the editorial process and kind of writer-editor relationships like the forms of a book, um, bookmaking, ebooks, uh, everything into the digital era, um, funding, labor, and the publishing workforce, uh, and the role of volunteerism, um, the lack of diversity and equity in U.S. publishing. We're going to talk about reading publics and attention in the internet age, uh, the role of Amazon, of Apple, Google, social media, kind of the algorithm, how that comes into publishing and to literary work and literary attention. We're going to talk about literary publishing's relationships with the academy, with colleges, universities, and MFA programs, um, the meanings of not-for-profit, uh, the ethics and politics of how publishing is structured, and we're going to talk about distribution, which is how books reach readers, kind of how they flow through different sales channels and publicity, 
maybe how those are working now, how they could work in the future. We want to document some strategies and histories so that people can use them. And we want to gather new ideas um, and tactics from a lot of the people that we admire um, and who are out there doing the work of literary editing and publishing right now. Um, and you know, in my time in editing and publishing, I felt like it's kind of hard to learn about. There's a lot of one-on-one -on -one relationships, like mentorship. There's a lot of like brief conversations on social media and sort of informal networks of conversation, but those aren't necessarily accessible to everyone um, and they aren't kind of documented. So um, this title, Index for Continuance, we actually stole from an essay of Zach. So maybe I'll let him talk, <laughs> talk about it and talk about what brings him to this podcast. Yeah, we stole it from me. Um, yeah, it, well, it was an, an essay that I wrote in uh, kind of the, I feel like it was like the depths of the first sort of like COVID winter. Um, <clears throat> and in that essay, I was just like thinking about things that felt like fuel or like sources of energy um, and things that needed to be, or I felt like maybe should be acknowledged, you know, just like for, for me, <laughs> like <laughs> that maybe someone should acknowledge the, the, the things to the world. Um, obviously like those are just, they were, I mean, there's like a list of a few of my favorite things. Like, you know, it's such a like silly, like premise for an essay, but, um, it, you know, became more of like a, a prompt for just, I think like reflecting on, um, I don't know, like some kind of larger value or, or the idea of value <laughs> or <laughs> something in some bigger way. Really, I was just, I decided I would just write about um, some things that I really liked in uh, kind of an alphabetical order. But I think actually, if you go and look at the essay, it's not, it's the form of an index, but it's not like following index rules. So it's not even alphabetical. Um, but it was, uh, you know, I, I like, I think I wrote about, you know, obviously I wrote about a lot of like literature that was important to me. Um, also, but also like literature that felt like I, that it should be important to me or something, right? Like I feel, I always feel really vexed by the amount of things out there that I'm never probably going to fully like, you know, absorb or understand. And like there are, you know, gaps in, in education in that way. Uh, it just felt like it was a really like uh, low pressure exercise or it was like a, an effort to come off as low pressure and just like appreciating things. Um, and kind of writing about them in this like prompty way um, and yeah we stole it because it felt like I mean in the way in that essay I, it was I mean I don't want to like uh, make what I was doing sound really that grand um, it felt important in the moment but also just felt very regular um, you know to sort of think about the things that like give one cause to continue <laughs> you know like it's really simple um but uh that that sort of idea or that ethos felt incidentally applicable to like the work of small press publishing where you know the the motivation is often deeply intrinsic and hard to justify outwardly <laughs> financially sometimes in like a in terms of like time or effort or even like I don't know health <laughs> so um, it felt like it, it there was a connection there in that way and 
you know, I think one of the missions of this project that, you know, you touched on, Hillary, that maybe makes the connection fully is the idea of thinking of an archive and, like, you know, uh, especially like a self-made archive, you know, which I, I feel like is what this is a little bit. I feel like it's also a little bit what the small press is in a sense, in like another philosophical way. Um, so it was, uh, I, I was, I was happy to, to let it go, <laughs> to let the title, uh, you know, be applied to this. Um, cause I think, yeah, I think that's cool. It's good to steal. <laughs> Is that the moral? I don't know. Um, yeah, did I answer the question? Was I, I think to say so. More? I mean, to me, it's about like about like hope too. Like yeah. what we in that time yeah. were able to find hopeful, mm-hmm. or felt like was meaningful and was a way of making meaning with people when you like couldn't see them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems like it, to me, it has to do with publishing um, and the way that books move between people and connect people very powerfully and intimately, even though it's over great gaps of space and time and even language. Um, so yeah. That's good. I forgot about hope. Forgot. Yeah, we often forget about hope, but not today. Uh, <laughs> not today. Cool. <laughs> uh, well, we should talk about our guest. Right? Our first guest, yeah. um, and you're about to hear us interview him, is Matvey Yankalevich, and you may know his work as a poet, a translator, a critic, founding member of Ugly Duckling Press, which runs as an editorial collective, um, sometimes referred to in the interview as UDP, So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and also Ugly Duckling Press uh, does a lot of letterpress work, they make a lot of really beautiful books and have a... Or, I assume they still have. For a long time, they had a subscription model where you could get a whole bunch of like really gorgeous books and chapbooks in the mail. Um, I think that's true. Good. I think it still exists. Yeah, Great. Sure. <laughs> um, Matt Bay's recent works include the chapbook Dead Winter from Phonograph Editions, which we refer to in the interview. Um, and he also mentions a recent co-translation um, with Eugene Ostashevsky of An Invitation for Me to Think by Alexander Videnski, which was published by New York Review Books. Um, so we'll encourage you to check all of those out. Um, he's currently an editor with World Poetry Books, and he is a publisher of a very new press called Winter Editions. So before each of these interviews, um, we're going to stay true to our name <laughs> and uh, maybe define some terms that come up in the interviews. We wanted to both like have conversations that could get pretty nitty gritty and inside baseball (laughs) about editing and publishing and book selling um, and all of these subjects. But we also want them, you know, to be accessible to people who like maybe (laughs) haven't encountered all these terms yet before. um, Some of which are, you know, kind of obscure. Uh, So we thought at the beginning we would just like give a little definition of um, some of these terms and and some of you listening may know them already. You can always skip ahead. It's a podcast. You can do what you want. Um, <laughs> I'm going to listen to it four times the regular speed. <laughs> but we'll just go through some things that came up in our discussion to give a little context. Um, and for those of you who are just coming into or exploring editing and publishing or figuring out what small presses can do versus what the big corporate publishers are doing, kind of wanting to learn more about how books are made or thinking about starting a project of your own, we'll try to give some of these kind of terms and resources 
um, so that the discussion to follow um, can be more, you know, can be more accessible and clear um, and also doesn't just use a bunch of acronyms without defining them. (laughs) (laughs) Zach, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I'd love to start at the uh, beginning of the uh, alphabet, like a real index. Um, Adjunct. This is a word I love. Um, You know, just to pull it from the dictionary, right? Which isn't what we're going to do for all these. We're not going to, like, start with the dictionary. That would be really lame. But I feel like this is one where maybe it helps. A thing added to something else as a supplementary rather than an essential part. Um, And the way in which we mean adjunct for the context of our our conversation with Matvey and uh, Matvey, and the way that it'll come up more often, I think, elsewhere in this podcast is in the context of um, an adjunct professor or adjunct faculty at a, uh, an institution of higher learning, <laughs> um, which is, uh, I know it's work, a form of work that Hillary has done. Um, it's a form of work that I'm doing right now. Uh, and basically means you are an adjunct instructor, adjunct professor, a supplementary rather than essential (laughs) instructor in the institution. Um, It basically means you're not a full-time employee of um, the college or the university. Uh, Rather, you are hired on a class-by-class basis. Um, You're paid on a schedule (laughs) Um, because you're not a full or even part-time employee. uh, You don't get access to healthcare, um, retirement, um, or necessarily the certainty or guarantee that you will get work in the future. It's really, you're hired on an as-needed basis by um, the institution. And uh, I am currently an adjunct instructor here at CSU, uh, teaching um, some of the different creative writing classes. Uh, and I am also an adjunct instructor at the Cleveland Institute of Art, teaching some more writing courses, right? Yeah. Does that check? Does that, that, that checks, track with your... um, For context, if people are curious, about half of classes at colleges and universities in the U.S. right now are taught by adjuncts. So we've seen a big shift in the past few decades from kind of full-time teaching over to this combination of full-time and part-time, you know, quote-unquote gig labor teaching. And the average annual salary, this is this figure's a couple years old, but it'll give that context for, for someone working entirely as adjunct is twenty to $25,000 a year because the course-by-course course wage is usually very low. So that's part of the labor model at higher ed these days. Um, and you will maybe hear us refer to the adjunctification of everything oh, yeah, right. <laughs> in the conversation. Um, the next term we use is AWP. Um, some of you will know this well, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, which is a professional literary organization that's kind of facing colleges and universities. It's a more academic oriented. Um, when we talk about AWP, we're usually talking about their big annual conference, which they do once a year. I think at its peak, you know, well over 10,000 people attended it. Um, you know, the pandemic has affected that a bit, but it's a place where a whole bunch of presses, writers, um, a lot of faculty and students are there kind of attending programs, et cetera. Um, and it has a big book fair. And with Matt Fay, we're talking a bit about that book fair where a lot of literary journals, independent presses, and small presses come to sell their books. And it's a pretty important sales opportunity 
for those presses. Um, but at the same time, it's pretty expensive to get to and be at. So you'll kind of hear us talk about that tension between um, being involved in this major organization that serves our field versus the sort of uh, ante that's involved in um, attending some of those events. Yeah, I think it's also important, I think, to acknowledge that it is, it's like a very like social occasion too, you know? For so sure. Especially in, I feel like in, uh, you know, these sort of like arts endeavors, right? There's uh, the always the layer of um, <clears throat> like connection making or networking or whatever, and you know, AWP is certainly like like build as that in one sense, um, which is true to an extent. But then there, I think there is also the the sort of like yeah, like the social dimension of it. Like, mm-hmm. oh, am I like? Mm-hmm. If I'm not at this thing, am I part of the scene, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, is important. Maybe, I don't know, and maybe this just comes from, like, my experience with it, right? I've, I've been a handful of times. Um, I'm not, like, 22. I'm a little older, but, like, I understand, you know, people's uh, maybe, like, disillusion with some of the social dimensions of it. But they also feel important, you know, like, to me, someone who, you know, is trying to, like, be in this world, like feels like that's that's like probably such a large motivating factor for people to go right beyond mm-hmm. like sales um maybe maybe it's like just as important as sales I don't I don't know maybe I shouldn't say that as the managing editor of this press where I <laughs> <laughs> am in charge of sales reports um okay right keep going let's keep going <laughs> okay. I'm yeah I was thinking I was like oh it's AWP is like an institutional setting for the scene um, yeah. <laughs> but I guess I should add as an organization they also like they have a job board they run prizes sure. they run yeah, various yeah. programs they have grants and things like that yeah. so I don't mean to erase all that as well but we're yeah. usually talking about the big physical gathering right. of them when we talk about AWP um our next term Book scan. Book scan. Okay, so doing a little uh, sort of etymology, a little linguistic um, excavating, I can tell that this is uh, a book-related scanning of, of books. Um, it's a, is it an index of a sort? It's like a, a record? It's like the... It's a report, kind of, yeah. It's, or it's a database, yeah. It's a, uh, like a Billboard 100 of, like, book sales, but, like, not as fun or as accurate or I am, I don't know I, how fun it is it's a question there's a question mark at the end of that I don't I don't know for sure um but purportedly this is a way f- for one to see in aggregate like the state of American book selling right in a, a quantitative way yeah cool. yeah okay it's supposed to cover so if you have a book out and you can look it up on Amazon, if you go and look at the, you can go and look at the report. So they have a, they have title by title information. Um, supposedly BookScan covers, and this is, I'm reading from their website, 85% of trade print books sold in the U.S. So they're, they're telling you about 85% of the total sales on that book. But as we're going to talk about for small press books, that 85% probably isn't right. It's probably much less than that um, because we sell through a lot of different kinds of channels. Bookskin doesn't include library sales. It doesn't include like obviously things you sell at readings. It doesn't include certain kinds of wholesales or or things like that. So um, it's kind of like in big corporate uh, publishing, it's sort of a marker that people rely on to be like, how much did this book sell? Um, The smaller the 
compresses, the less it captures, probably. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. I like that the URL that it, this page lives at ends in hashtag what's included. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <it> seems cool. <laughs> it's a thing, like, if you go to one of the big trade shows, people will talk about getting figures for a book sales from BookScan. So it's used cool. in, the, in the trade that way. Um, it's trades, man. Great. Okay. CLMP is the community of literary magazines and presses. And this comes up, we're gonna, we talked to Matt Vey about a four part essay series that he wrote. Um, and he talks a little bit about the history of CLMP and what resources they offer presses. Um, but they're another professional organization, as their name suggests, they mostly serve um, publishers, like literary magazines and presses. Um, they also like have resources, they have grants, they have a job board, they have things like that. They're meant to, to serve as a kind of central professional organization and resource for people doing that kind of publishing work. Cool. They also like sort of, don't they kind of validate or outwardly verify the like ethical standing of your publication oh, process right, right? that's kind of like that's where yeah you have to like attest that like you're like not biased and who you, or i don't know what the exact i'm like they, a, so a lot <laughs> of you might have seen them if you've entered a contest like that there's like this contest follows the CLMP code of ethics. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so at some point, we won't rehash all of the scandals of um, like poetry publishing. <laughs> but like, you know, at some point, they stepped in because there was a lot of concern that certain kinds of contests or um, open reading periods that maybe charged a fee yeah. actually weren't drawing on those pools yeah. um, and were, you know, soliciting and selecting work outside of the pool. Um, so the CLMP code of ethics, yeah, like basically provides a set of guidelines to say like this press is operating ethically and they're going to use the submission fee for the said that the thing they said they were going to use it for and yeah. they are going to review your submissions and they're going to consider every one of them right yeah. for publication. Yeah. So they do things like that. That's cool. useful. Yeah. 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 <laughs> cool. Great. Um, okay. Uh, more more acronyms. Uh, ISBN. <laughs> International Standard Book Number. Can you infer from the <laughs> <laughs> from the words? Uh, yeah, it's fascinating, it, right? Yeah. It's a um, it's a license plate for your book. Mm -hmm. It's a, an identification number that is unique to a specific title, so that it can be searched in libraries, uh, bookstores, archives, wherever. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like what you'll see on the barcode of a book. That's right. Yeah. It's like without an ISBN, you can't, there will be ways that you can't sell your book. You can't sell your book through a lot of major yep. sales channels. Um, but, but um, you know, obviously you could sell your book like by hand or any place that let you sell it. But an ISBN is sort of a certain kind of like bar to clear if you mm -hmm. want to sell books through kind of more established conventional um sales channels and distributors do you have to this is just like a question i'm just thinking of you probably don't have to have an isbn to apply for copyright on a material or cool question you? i'm guessing no and then yeah. like and then what about library of congress do you have to have an isbn to put a text in the library of congress i'm guessing yes Cool. Uh, we can just someone guess. could. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> someone no. probably knows. No, I'd I'm have just to wondering. look it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I just thought of this. Um, and we're not here to answer all the questions. We're, we're here to have the questions. We're on a journey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we're figuring it all it, it all out at the same time. Um, okay, another. Oh, the next one is one that some of you will know very well. MFA, um, Masters of Fine Arts. This is the graduate degree in creative writing uh, that starts. 
post-World War II. It's terminal. <laughs> it's term. It's a terminal degree, we're often reminded. Um, so, yeah, we talk a little bit about about MFAs, um, how people kind of feel about their role in, in literary culture, yeah. um, maybe their sociological role. Uh, you know, I myself have an MFA, and I teach in an MFA program just to have that out there in the world. <laughs> I have an MFA, too, from right here. I don't teach in an MFA program. There we go. Just for just in case anyone's wondering. Um, okay, uh, next one. Um, mimeograph. And this came up because one of the, right, like one of Matt Fay's blog entries on Harriet, um, the sort of subtitle of it, I think, is like power to the people's mimeograph machines. Yes. And yeah. my, my understanding of the mimeograph is it's, it's sort of a, like a predecessor to the modern copier. Yes. I don't really know. I don't really either. It looks cool. Yeah. Um, it's got like some cool mechanical like rolly parts. Um, the ink appears to be blue, but maybe not always. And through some cursory Googling, we learned just today that the ink has a particular smell and like is probably an inhalant, like probably gets you a little bit high. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're not experts on Publishing stuff. today? Does not get you high. Yeah. Correct, yeah. We've lost that. We've lost that feature. Copying things hasn't doesn't get you high no. either. I, no. I print so much stuff out all the time. Mimeographs are something some people know a lot about. and That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're not of their numbers yet. But uh, anyway, we only talk about that briefly. Uh, our next term. <laughs> we like Any, learning, though. Yeah. yeah. Our next term is NEA, um, which is mentioned in here. The NEA is the National Endowment for the Arts. So it's a federal program um, that gives out a bunch of grant money. Um, that's basically it, its main role. So we just, you know, sort of discuss. They do kind of they do programming and, and mainly distribution of grant money. Um, yeah. So that's the context that we talk about them in. Cool. Um, I think this is the last acronym. Direct acronym, S SPD, Small Press Distribution. Um, something I've worked with, I don't know if it's direct or indirect, but I've, I've mailed them a lot of boxes of books uh, from our press here, the CSU Poetry Center, that they then distribute for us. Um, so my understanding of SPD is they provide a distribution distribution service to um, small presses, I think, throughout the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. They're not really mm -hmm. dealing outside the U.S. Um, but, you know, they, I, they, I think the, the proposition, right, is like they give a, um, they give the small press, which, you know, might often be a, you know, we call it a press, but it's probably just like one to three people with an email account, <laughs> you know, um, a way of uh, getting their books distributed in a wider way, um, a way for books to be ordered by um, not just like individual readers, but also bookstores um, and like college bookstores, um, just kind of handling a little more of that like, you know, bulk shipping than, you know, the press may be able to do with their hands day to day. Mm -hmm. Distribution, I guess I, like, Distribution is a kind of confusing publishing term, I think, mm -hmm. in that, like, okay, like, a publisher publishes the books, but 
mostly we don't warehouse them ourselves mm. and mail them out to the majority of orders. We only do that a little bit, right? So most presses like work with a distributor and also distributors distribute to each other. There's like layers <laughs> of distributors. Um, I remember when I started working at publishing, it was a term that I like took a long time to figure, like no one mm. told me what it was and I was like, what is like? Um, so yeah, SPD is unusual in that it's a nonprofit, which of right. course, like most distributors, are a, are a for-profit business, um, and that they're meant to. A lot of small presses are too small to kind of qualify for the terms at other distributors. Like they wouldn't carry our books because we don't publish enough books a season. We're not kind of worth it for them. So the idea of SPD um, was to represent all the small presses in the U.S. and by coming together and pooling resources and representing them collectively they could um, you know have a voice have a share in the market get distribution get into bookstores work with um, you know some of the larger uh, sales entities in US publishing and book selling um, so SPD sells for example our books to Amazon it sells them to Ingram like they're all there and that's the kind of how they flow outward through those channels I think of the, uh, I used to have a, a van with a cracked distributor cap, which is part of <laughs> the engine that when you try to, my, when you turn the key, it sparks things in there. Um, and um, it worked, but because it, the cap was cracked, whenever it rained, my car wouldn't start. Um, so, you know, maybe that is part of distribution. That's the kind of problem. <laughs> yeah. They're here to solve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, definitely. <laughs> okay. Our, our yeah. last term was university press, yeah. and this one's like a little um, confused. You know, a traditional university press is like part of the mission of the university. Like, it's there to support scholarship. It's there um, to, you know, it recognizes that scholarship doesn't, like, compete on the market. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's there to, like, make sure that, um, you know, scholarship gets published as, as part of the kind of its public intellectual mission. Um, the past two decades have seen a whole bunch of university presses close. Um, you know, traditionally they would have a staff that worked at the university. You know, they would work on a peer review model. They might have like a regional focus. They might have all sorts of different lists um, in different disciplines. Um, but they are, you know, a little bit under siege at the moment uh, as kind of cuts have swept through all of American higher ed which is part of the adjunctification of everything. Oh. Um, <laughs> the CSU Poetry Center, I should add, um, so we are housed in a university. We're kind of nestled in its library and its English department, but we are not kind of a traditional university press in that, um, you know, first of all, we publish literary work um, rather than scholarship, and also we're not kind of supported as directly, you know, the pre the university isn't funding the books, for example, but it does support some uh, a whole bunch of the labor at the press in various ways um, through course releases or through salaries or graduate assistantships. So it's not exactly a traditional university press, but it has that in the name. Um, so that seemed worth clarifying. Yeah, 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 totally. Well, that's our index for today. Okay, we did it. Let's um, do it. And then, so then we talked to Matfit, Matfit, in the, I say his name wrong, <laughs> in the present, and then we talked to him in the past. Yeah. But the present. Yeah. Okay, good. Let's go. <laughs> Matfit, thank you so much for joining us. Um, so in February 2020, 
you published a four-part essay on small press history, politics, and practice on Harriet, um, the blog of the Poetry Foundation. So I've been rereading the series and teaching it and wanting to talk to you about it ever since then. And to that end, um, you're the very first person we contacted when we set out to do this podcast. Um, so if it's all right, I wanted to start with that series. And for listeners who may not have read it yet, I'll just share the titles of the four essays to kind of give a sense of the scope um, and direction of your discussion. Um, part one, Power to the People's Mimeo Machines or the Politicization of Small Press Aesthetics. Part two, Autonomy's Compromise and the Professionalization of the Small Press. Part three, The New Normal, How We Gave Up the Small Press. And part four is Fervent and Utopian, Small Press at a Crossroads. So over the course of this series, you start with historical context in the post-war US and particularly the small press literary activities of the 60s and 70s and its connection with radical uh, political movements. And you discuss how, quote, small press has defined itself aesthetically and politically, how it accrued cultural power, identifying authenticity with its own marginality and anti-institutional values, and how these values and positions have been historicized, removed, and replaced through a gentrifying professionalization of the literary field. The series goes on to detail your concerns about professionalization, institutionalization, and how, quote, the small press today is threatened by injunctions from funders and institutions to professionalize and to abandon a legacy predicated on amateurism, autonomy, and anti-capitalist and anti-institutional politics, end quote. And you conclude with discussing Ugly Duckling Press's work, its structure, and its evolution in the context of this history. You're a co-founder of Ugly Duckling, of course, and it's a press that runs as an editorial collective. Along the way, you talk about grant funding, the role of organizations like AWP and CLMP, the promise and struggle of collective organizations like Small Press Distribution, the rise of the MFA and its attendant professionalization of the work of the writer, and you also break down the cost of publishing a small press book and its average sales income, uh, which I thought was a kind of grim <laughs> transparency that we need more of. Um, the directness about money that appears in this series is remarkable. And you detail exactly the kind of thing that much of publishing is always trying not to talk about publicly. Um, for my own part, I see this essay as an intervention into the commercializing, homogenizing trends in independent and small press culture and a callback into politics, um, which means a callback into specificity and contestation over platitudes and bland universality and a laying out of some stakes that maybe our literary culture tries to pretend aren't there. Um, anyway, I want to start by asking you about your motivation to write this essay series and kind of how your aims and arguments uh, developed. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to join you here for this podcast um, uh, and this inaugural part of the series uh, that you're doing, which I'm very excited about. Um, thank you also for summarizing so well <laughs> the concerns of those essays, which are rather sprawling. Uh, perhaps, uh, but I'm glad that um, a thread, uh, that you could see a thread through it, um, uh, a concern, uh, a politics perhaps, and um, through those essays. It's hard to recollect why I embarked on that task, and at first I thought it was going to be a shorter essay, and um, 
and then I had this opportunity. So I was already doing a lot of the research um, because I was curious about what was happening. I saw it, saw these things happening uh, when I worked at UDP. Uh, I saw how UDP was changing in relationship to uh, external pressures. How and we talked a lot at UDP uh, about this sort of bifurcated personality of the press, this sort of schizophrenic quality of having to report in certain ways to funders while attempting to keep a kind of integrity and uh, certain kind of small press image alive in our collective work, in our work both with volunteers and the way the books were produced, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the two things weren't really matching and going to, and caused a lot of stress for the organization. Um, and I think it does so for many uh, others uh, because you have to put up this front about how you're reaching readers and um, market and how you're succeeding. And on the other hand, you are in, and to do that, you have to pretend that some of the structural problems for distribution and, and sale of, of uh, small press books doesn't exist. <laughs> and uh, that it's, it's just, oh, well, if there's a, if there's a will, there's a way, we'll, we'll get the books to the readers. Um, uh, and, and actually there are structural problems that you can't address on, in, when you show that face, right? Um, and yeah, so I, I think it came out of uh, frustrations that I felt um, within uh, and, and changes I had seen, you know, uh, trying to think back to when the press started, but also even to initiatives like Table X at AWP and trying to figure out what didn't work about that. Um, attempt to bring together a lot of small presses and chapo presses to create some kind of faction that might have some power within that uh, huge AWP um, uh, book exhibit, um, uh, which was growing so substantially. Um, and I, I just wanted to kind of think about what our what I had experienced in my lifetime in this sort of so-called small press boom. Um, and to and I realized that there were a lot of, um, I don't know, mystifications within that boom um, and kinds of, and, and actually how my generation of small press people um, had, had both uh, created um, a kind of popularity or buzz around small press uh, work and poetry and so forth and translation, but that actually uh, we had also contributed in some ways to uh, the problems that we, you know, we bought in in certain ways to the structures that uh, began to plague us <laughs> um, and to make the work nearly impossible. Um, so there were a lot of, you know, and then there were in the research, there were a lot of things that um, kind of spurred new avenues in the writing and uh, new strands of research, trying to get to the bottom of some, some things. Um, and, and I noticed, or I found a lot of things that were actually surprising to me. 
um, or started to see connections and threads that I hadn't really given as much thought to before. Um, and I think, you know, it, in a lot of ways, it came down to uh, understanding where the politics were and what they were and uh, noticing how small press was being used by institutions like AWP and so forth, um, but not supported. Um, and uh, and where where you know we were being in a way small presses in the last twenty years were just being pulled along into um, a more manageable, um, controllable mainstream space, um, uh, sort of or or ethic of, or I don't know ethos of like you know um, sales marketing you know success. Um, uh, Kind of, you know, uh, I, I think things that have really affected small press aesthetics as well, uh, as you mentioned, kind of bland universalism or something like that, Hillary. And um, uh, yeah, we everyone had to sort of kind of get on board with whatever the institutions wanted. And uh, and that was a frightening, frightening thing to, to notice. Uh, how that was happening and how I had myself participated in that. I think with the uh, Table X and other attempted interventions, and I talked also about some of the more recent AWP, the uh, offsite uh, sort of uh, book fairs that were supposedly unaligned uh, with AWP and how they crossed over AWP. I think it, in all of those cases, there was kind of um, a fear of the political. And I've been noticing the fear of the political in, in, in uh, things like um, uh, editorial notes in magazines and so forth, the, the fear of, or the, the sort of some, somehow like a kind of new wave that repeats a 19, sorry, a 20, uh, a 2000 or 99 turn of the century kind of paradigm of like um, a professionalized uh, poetry world, particularly, or you know, creative writing world, or small press world, let's say um, that um, um, that would rather not have political distinctions, uh, would rather not talk about uh, uh, groups and factions or aesthetics as political. Uh, or uh, aesthetic uh, kind of um, an animosities, right, <laughs> that that come out of uh, political stakes, um, and that to me has been—it's sort of surprising and fascinating, um, and and yet not so surprising, <laughs> but still fascinating. Um, I don't know. I, I could. I, I feel like uh, you could ask another question. <laughs> we could could get more specific. <laughs> and I think what you said about particulars is really important. Um, uh, that that stuck out to me in your question. That that that's that. Yes, we should talk about the money. I'm working right now on on an article about 
the structural problems of distribution in and that that leads to basically to to a kind of market censorship uh, of small press titles um, and how that works, what's behind that, what is how to how do uh, corporations like Ingram um, control certain things about the market um, for independent presses and uh, make things difficult for some of the smaller uh smaller independent presses um and how that happens behind the scenes where you know independent bookstores talk about how they're fighting amazon but they won't order spd books you know that kind of thing so i'm i'm really interested in that problem because i think it's really a, uh, a lot of our literary cultural problems right now are, are have to do with the sort of the kind of um uh, that information being kind of, or that full context being so submerged and hidden, uh, all of the back sort of the, the, the ways that books move in the world, right? Um, and uh, we, we think that, you know, we have this sort of free market miss, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, ideology that suggests that, well, if the book is good enough, then it will do well. And uh, actually, has really very little to do with uh, the way that books move. Has really very little to do with that. Um, so anyway, I, I I'm I'm happy to like hear other questions and maybe more particulars, so that I don't go on in vague, in vague ways. <laughs> no, uh, that's great. I um I want to hear more. I know that Hillary has a follow-up to that. Um, but I just was wondering, just as like a point of clarification for folks who might not be familiar, if you could just talk briefly about Table X and what that oh, yeah. project was. Yeah. So yeah, I, I wrote about it a bunch in the article, but um, yeah, it was a, an attempt by maybe, I can't remember now how many, 40 or so small presses. Uh, and it was growing each year. I think it lasted like three, three and a half years or something like that um, to consolidate all. We noticed a bunch of us, um, my friends and other small presses and um, we, we, everyone was noticing that small, that little chapbook publishers were being squeezed in between, you know, university presses and new directions and um, uh, journals from universities and so MFA programs and and were being lost kind of and sort of um, we wanted to consolidate that and show that we had you know we were we occupied a pretty large part of an exciting part of the so-called market <laughs> at AWP and perhaps through that to potentially have some way to push AWP to give Nonprofit discounts to small presses, or you know, but you know, budget um, sort of uh, sliding scale entry fees, or something like that. Um, but but most of all, I think that uh, even prior to any demands, it was just a uh, a way to suggest that we had other. Um, this was a group of presses, a growing group of presses that had other concerns, other aesthetics, other politics. Than what was being represented uh, more widely at the book fair, and it, you know, proved to provide a lot of visibility to a lot of smaller presses and chapbook presses. And we had a 
we had a table every year that was non-commercial. So like we bought, we all co-opt the table that where we could have kind of impromptu childcare and uh, activities like sewing chapbooks or readings um, without, you know, sort of within our own space. Uh, so we bought like basically a block of whatever, 25 tables and they were split variously with all the presses and so one group had to manage buying all of that and then uh, and, uh getting the money from other people other presses and then um and we I don't know made signage and had events related to table x and uh and tried to get people to and that cor that corner of the book fair was actually really really lively um uh but there was no uh in this is what i write about in the essay is that in hindsight it seemed like no one could really gather around uh, a particular set of political um um uh tent posts because they're because everybody was feeling the pressure to not do anything to, you know, bother the forces uh, in power, um, and or to dis uh, or to disassociate from, um, but you know, and a lot of the people doing small press were part of MFA programs or were teaching in MFA programs. I teach at an MFA program, um, you know, and and you know, you don't want to necessarily rock the boat too much um, if you're an adjunct or something or uh but in the end we just i think we couldn't have we didn't have a political platform and that has been kind of plagued i think uh small presses and and the few the uh the, the small press uh book fairs outside of awp in the last several years have had a similar problem um because there's no nobody wants to say i mean in uh, during the table x discussions over those years we talked about having our own book fair like why do we have to pay for tables at awp maybe people can come um you know most of us weren't funded to go there by our universities or anything or so why not just have a different space an alternative space and really uh suggest that there is an alternative uh, publishing world and um, and get people to come to that and have our own events and panels and um, discussions on things that the AWP might not accept. Um, and that never quite came to fruition. I think there were a lot of, there was a lot of worry and some of that worry was a worry that, well, who might we be excluding if we did that, uh, which is a, an, you know, there was no, you know, obviously AWP was like, I mean, Table X was like, if, if a press contacted one of us and said, hey, I want to be part of this, there was no, there was no, uh, you know, there, it was come come as you like, because there was no vetting or anything. Um, uh, the desire to join it was enough, and it was the only prerequisite. And so, um, but on the other hand, there was a concern that um, maybe some people would not feel comfortable going to that space uh, um, for whatever reason, or whether it would be diverse enough, or um, because a lot of the bigger presses like Grey Wolf and others were already perhaps 
starting to uh, have a more more diversity in their lists and they would be at the book fair at the main book fair and what would happen if we were if these small presses were outside of that um, um, other kinds of concerns but in the end also a lot of fear about like well I want to be at both I don't want to miss the opportunity to sell to young MFA students and uh, and uh, and uh, somehow um, view them with a love of small press uh, <laughs> and and make them you know excited about subscribing or following uh, this tiny press let's say so um, so what would be lost by not being at the, at the big AWP that the, also the authors, and I read about this in the essay, authors frequently asked, well, are you going to bring my book to AWP? And every press, every small press has that kind of burden um, that is partly uh, driven by authors wanting to be part of that professional world um, uh, for good reasons. <laughs> um, you know, if you're teaching in an MFA and your book isn't at the big book fair, maybe you lose some kind of cloud or you don't feel like you're part of the real world. And uh, so, and and you want to progress or you're trying to, you're an adjunct or you're just finishing an MFA and you want to get a job, you want to be at the big book fair. So authors were also driving that desire or that fear to separate. Um, and so no kind of separatist politics were possible uh, for all of those reasons. Uh, and uh, no real uh, kind of anti-institutional politics were, were possible for those reasons. Um, uh, and, and so the, we, it kind of lost its teeth, you know, um, uh, this initiative, I think. And, uh, you know, it's hard, it's very hard to get like 40 different small presses to agree on a political statement of any kind, right? I mean, and I love the idiosyncrasy and the and the kind of variety of small press editor editorial um, approaches. And I, I, I'm really into that every this claiming of authority that I talk about uh, in that essay, but also that you you know you see you know editors start a magazine or a press and and they're saying this is what I love and this is what I'm going to publish and I'm going to invest my time in and volunteer for and so forth so that has that that's the great thing about it and and uh, that means that there are a lot of different points of view <laughs> and very difficult to agree on a on a political platform there were some attempts at Table X to do that. Um, those long discussions didn't come to uh, fruition, partly because of uh, the difficulties of organizing the thing itself were, you know, th that was a lot of work in itself. And it was like, of course, people like to talk about ideas and politics, but who's going to actually you know, write, you know, write to all the people in the in table X and get them to agree to X or Y or or uh, who's going to get the coffee or the manage the not the non commercial space table or um, uh, who's going to collect all the money and all that. So this is a lot of a lot of additional work that everybody was taking on uh, organizing the events or finding venues, etc. So, of course, there was there was just the pressures of time and, and and finances and resources were were played a, played a role as well. 
Did I answer your question more or less? Oh yeah, absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm, I just, I love all of this. I was just thinking of one of the first AWPs I worked at. Um, I, we shared our table with a prep. I didn't know, like we just sold a few books for them. They couldn't go like it's a friend of a friend. And then I, you know, tried to pay them at the end of it. And I just like, couldn't do the math at all. So they had to write me back very politely to be like, you actually owe us a bunch more money. Than that. And I was like, oh yeah, like, I'm so happy to host books for you, but I don't know how to do math. Like, I just don't, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, this is our relationship. Um, you know, I, I want to think about that kind of, um, the knot that you're describing and the sort of paradox where it's like, we have to already already have agreed, but also we haven't yet agreed on a politics. Um, and, and I think you said, you know, in some of those, that kind of bifurcated nature um, of the small press where we're, you know, existing in our idiosyncratic uh, editorial and buyerly selves, and then we're also facing institutions or dealing with the situation of money and the market and a market that we're largely kind of pushed out of. I think the phrase you used was to, we have to sort of pretend some of the structural problems don't exist, um, you know, in, in a lot of situations. And I feel like in some way that is very tied up in this fear of the political that even kind of amongst ourselves and small presses, we struggle to articulate a politics that we couldn't then articulate when we're facing institutions or facing the larger um, kind of corporate settings and entities that we have to kind of try to keep existing in, even though they're mostly, um, you know, exploiting or excluding us from, <laughs> from their markets. So I wanted to kind of, I'm just curious, maybe in relation to that about responses you've received to this piece. Um, and I was thinking about that as, you know, I've written some on these topics as well, and it's not always very welcome, right, to talk about how money actually works um, in publishing and the sort of compromise that um, that you're concerned about, right, how the political charge and kind of autonomy of cultural work can be compromised by its funding and institutionalization. And I think, you know, you touched on this a little bit in, in talking about, you know, there's an idea that a the good, a good book will just always magically sell, right? Like there's a, it's kind of this like American myth of something we can, we can have it all, um, you know, like, and I see it in, in Indian, Indian small press publishing. I see that myth kind of working two ways. I mean, first that a press or a program or whatever can be independent of the values or structural dynamics of its funding, um, even as it's increasingly dependent on that funding mm -hmm. in a material sense. Um, and second, like that a small press kind of wants to be big and to reach mainstream culture, which maybe it does or doesn't. And even that it can be big, um, which, you know, those of us who are working at them, you know, realize how marginalized we are in a corporate dominated book market and that we can't, we cannot actually reach those audiences. Um, and a lot of, a lot of work has been done to, to keep us um, from reaching them. And we also might place an explicit value on how our work is um, in your word and the essays anti-commercial. Um, so, and I think in, in the second part of this series, uh, you emphasize that, and this is a quote, um, what is perhaps most dangerous in that it is disempowering is the fiction of autonomy's irrelevance of the inevitability of institutionalization and the enjoyment of the professional or financial fruits of compromise with the institution or the state. Um, end quote. And so, you know, people, which probably also really includes me sometimes, you know, want to believe in that fiction. 
and that, you know, the compromises we make to thrive in the market were inevitable or served our mission rather than undermining it. Um, and it's hard to say like to oneself or an organization or entity or any writer, right? That no, if you want to maximally protect those values and community orientations, you may really have to stay small. Um, and you truly are going to sell fewer books. Um, and I think people want there to be a loophole, like a way to be like, okay, I could sell 10,000 copies or a hundred thousand copies without, um, quote unquote, selling out or without becoming bigger or without working more with corporate partners. Um, and so it's hard to kind of acknowledge the limitations there. Um, and, you know, it's also hard to know kind of what to do with them, right? Uh, people may not like, like it when those myths are challenged. I mean, I've found that when I write about topics like that, some of the realms that I'm critiquing just generally don't respond at all. <laughs> and then other people are excited, but there's a sort of what's next question. And I, I don't feel like I necessarily know how to answer that either. Um, so I'm just kind of, maybe I'll pause there and just kind of ask sort of what responses did you expect to the piece? What have you received? Maybe any responses in yourself? I don't know. Uh, well, the responses, I, I, I did get really some nice responses and I'm always really happy to hear when people say that they're sharing those essays with others or that they're using them in thinking about how to start a small press. Um, so I have gotten some of those kinds of responses. The response that I was hoping for was some dialogue. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not uh, personally like on Twitter and stuff. So I I know from some friends that there were some more, maybe some, some groups of people that maybe are on a more, in a more radical political space that might also think, well, ugly duckling press or this guy, like they're all, you know, they're already big or whatever, or and why did he publish this in the Poetry Foundation website? <laughs> Which is an is an interesting story in itself. Um and, and I heard like that kind of thing about some grumblings um that you know, um, why is it being published there and so forth if it's uh, if it's dealing with this kind of subject matter. My desire was that they that publishing it in such a visible place and such an institutional place and critiquing that institution itself within the piece would uh, potentially lead to some larger dialogue. Um, some kind of public discussion, <laughs> which really I don't think happened. I mean, I think it happens in small ways, like we're talking now and I've talked to others about these things, but um, yeah, it's like uh, I heard from someone that someone at the NEA was afraid to be on a panel with me. It's <laughs> like afraid of me, you know, like you're in the NEA. Um, uh, maybe one maybe somebody was upset that I had named them or something like that right so but and and maybe this topic is embarrassing or you know like uh for people in institutions to actually address but like why I I, I mean I think it's interesting in relationship to our conversation like the fact of that silence from the institutional side is actually you know really telling um and uh, there are, you know, pretty 
clear ways that um, universities and uh, um, AWP and the NEA could address these problems, but they're not going to. Um, uh, I think I, you know, suggested like, look, we had an NEA that gave money to very small magazines and presses for for many years. What I wanted to outline how that had changed in relationship to ideology, uh, but to show that actually it's not impossible, that it doesn't have to be 12 or 15 presses that get money from the NEA. Uh, and in fact, that that kind of support usually supports things that don't need it uh, as much as others uh, and, and narrows actually, and does not diversify, but actually narrows the kinds of publications that are happening and visible. Um, I, you know, I, I think there could be a real discussion about how uh, small presses could collectivize or pool their um, their energies and and perhaps have a, a certain kind of uh, union or something that that makes uh, that that demands certain things. Uh, you know, that talks about why bookstores aren't stocking their books that. Um, that talks about Amazon, that talks about publications that review their books, not, not linking to SPD or to the small presses, but linking to Amazon, like buy this book that, that we just reviewed by, from a small press, but buy it on Amazon. Um, you know, these kinds of very simple ways that, that uh, others could uh, get involved, um, people that are outside of small press, but interested in it. Um, and how, you, you know, universities, I get asked this at various panels, like, well, what can a university do? Well, I mean, if a university is really interested in, has a real educational mission, then perhaps they could give just as much money to a small press poet as to uh, uh, a, a big poet <laughs> uh, to, to read their work at the university or make sure the books are there <laughs> for a small press poet uh, or, or fiction writer, um, uh, maybe facilitate at, at the university level a discussion with students that makes clear that what they're reading is actually not part of a mainstream publishing world if such a book is assigned. Um, you know, you'll, you'll just see syllabi with, you know, small press books and then New Directions and then university presses and so forth. And you know that there's no discussion about how these publishers differ uh, and, and what the stakes are for each, you know. So there are a lot of ways that people could get involved in this uh, issue. Um, and perhaps I would have liked to see like a public debate, even like, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not good at debating, but, you know, it, it comes down to even like uh, also think trying to gather, I think, you know, that there's, there are a lot of myths out there. Um, uh, even the small press boom is itself is a kind of myth and the translation boom is a kind of myth. And um, what I think, you know, I, I was on a panel like 15 years ago at AWP and um, talking with Richard Nash, who was then the publisher of Soft Skull um 
before it was bought out. And um, who I really admire. And um, but we had this interesting disagreement, which I didn't have the numbers to back up. But um, you know, he was talking about how many books are published. Um, and recently, there's been interesting discussion of BookScan and um, these kinds of tools for bookstores that and and uh, and for um, major media that allow people to see how many of a book sold and you know et cetera. But there's a whole publishing culture outside of ISBNs that has existed for a long time, and we really don't know how many books were published by small presses in 1975. Uh, or 1963, or even 19 in the 1950s, um, uh, before there's these kinds of standardizations, especially. So, and, and there's just not very much data about which books really do well, because as you know, small press books move in different ways. They move informally at readings, and they move through subscriptions, and they move through um lending and uh uh and so forth uh and through friends and so we don't know what the readership of a small press book is uh and uh you know these major sources for bestseller lists and so forth like bookscan are uh are problematically skewed they're not accessible to researchers there's a lot there are a lot of real problems there uh, that have been recently uh, some some writing and research has been done about that, but um, I think it's kind of uh, being problematized now. But um, yeah, so so these kinds of things about you know having some, I, I think that that's like a really just interesting and important area that needs more exploration um, because we actually can't do cultural you know, scholarship about small press without some quantifying numbers. And the quantifying numbers that we see or that are available are just not, not really, are, are really, really have a lot of gaps. Um, uh, so what can you say about <clears throat> what people were reading in 2010? <clears throat> I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think that, <clears throat> um, I, I do think that, that, more and more, I'm seeing that <clears throat> that the uh, that what people are reading is narrowing, and that is happening for very, very, you know, it's a it's a predictable phenomenon um, because of all of the things we we've been talking about because of the kind of homogenization, the kind of um, you know building up of resources for powerful institutions to dictate kind of like what what is being read uh it's what's at the front of the bookstore and what uh what is available on the bookstore shelves um and so <clears throat> it's just a very uh it, it's frightening to me and I, I i later about a year after that those essays i wrote a talk on chapbooks for the queen's chapbooks uh chapbook festival and I tried to talk about how, because it was a university sponsoring this festival, I tried to talk about how like, well, it's, it's really, I mean, it's, it's nice that universities have embraced the chapbook and used it as a teaching tool for, uh, and 
found ways to incorporate it in the classroom. Um, but it's, uh, but I think that's a very, you know, it's a very small step. Um, and I wanted to think about how universities kind of um, propagate what is already there in the that is already propagated by the larger media that is already already has behind it a huge publicity budget and so forth. So if you if you take the prize winners and the um, the books that have ads everywhere and the books that are on the shelves everywhere and the books that are on the syllabi, you see a very, you know, very narrow list. Um, and it seems to me that the universe, the university is really what's responsible for, you know, we all grow up reading books that are assigned and, um, uh, and it's kind of up to people at, in those positions to diversify that, not only in terms of race, identity, uh, gender, but also to, to diversify that in terms of uh, where those publications are coming from. Um, and it's scary to think that like, when I've talked to some students that there are like three names they can list that are they're reading and those are all the names that are in the news and they're published by the bigger presses and it's like well this is this reading like this is you know <laughs> I don't know how to phrase the question exactly but um it seems to me that writers might be reading more than just what is kind of um at the foreground of all the media, you know, that is being supported, you know, and in fact supported by the NEA in many cases and supported. So you you have this um, this uh, agglomeration of resources at the hands of very few, and that goes toward promoting very specific authors, uh, such that the university doesn't have money to bring you, Hillary. It has money to bring only three or four people that year because they have to spend $5,000 on each one of those readings, if not 10. Um, so, you know, perhaps we, we could have like a campaign to have a university that doesn't have, have some kind of, I don't know, oath of ethics that, um, that, you know, the, you know, like, I decouples this idea of, of like what it you know worth and value from money right so like x poet is worth ten thousand and y poet is worth two hundred and fifty dollars for a dinner you know <laughs> um seems to me like the wrong you know the wrong approach for an educational edu institution that if if that if if it wants to claim anything any kind of like critique of this very system that we're talking about, right? The this uh, capitalist system, right? Um, so, so that's so. Anyway, that was God. I got off on a real tangent, but um, uh, you were talking about responses to the essays, and I guess those are some maybe some of my responses coming out of it. Um, uh, where some of my thinking is going when I have time to do a little research. Um, but I, um, but but yeah, I, I think I I would have wanted, and and it was not something that I really hoped for because that would have been uh, 
um, you know, a pipe dream, but you know, to have to have some kind of public discussion uh, on these issues, whether it's funding or you know, AWP costs or um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. I mean, I think too. Um, I mean, that desire for a public dialogue or for a more sustained dialogue means, you know, spending time in, in grappling with differences, which seems to be the thing that people <laughs> don't want to do um, or are maybe hesitant to do in public um, or, or, you know, I don't know if it's just a sense that our solidarity at small and independent presses depends on our not having differences or something, but in fact, you're like, no, we have to we have to have them um, for any of this to be real. And I was thinking, you know, you mentioned kind of one topic of dialogue might be, you know, for, for small presses to come together and talk about, you know, why our books aren't available in bookstores. And I think, you know, there's a huge conversation we need to happen about like how bad independent bookstores can be for small press publishing, you know, like, um, mm -hmm. you know, many indie bookstores do a beautiful job supporting us, but many would never buy a small press book um, and <laughs> exclude us entirely. Um, and, you know, I think that that's a hard topic to discuss in public because people don't want to alienate independent bookstores. And there's that sense of like, you know, they have a lot of rhetoric around their independence um, and their opposition to Amazon. So we should all kind of be on the same team for that. But you're like, well, we're not on the same team <laughs> because you don't stock our books. <laughs> um, so... I, I once spent a lot of time writing a heated letter to IndieBound that various members of my household convinced me not to spend. <laughs> We're like, I don't know I, what, what purpose do you think this will serve? But um, <laughs> And I was thinking too, when you talk about sort of the charge of the university and those of us who, who teach in them, um, as you know, we do also uh, in terms of like talking about, you know, how, how media works, right? Talking about how the text that they're reading get get to them, um, who made them, what sort of structure made them. And I think your phrase was, you know, sort of you know, diversifying text, right, in, in terms of where those publications are coming from. Um, and of course, that means that, you know, as your, as your work uh, is also talking about, right, helping diversify kind of people's sense of, of where power is, right? It means that, like, they too can become creators and publishers of, of these texts and people who are who are publishers. Um, whereas if you're only teaching about corporate publishing, I mean, there's really very few pathways into that work. Um, and it means that the, the students in the room are essentially just gonna be subject to it and not part of it. Whereas if you teach small press work, you, can, you are <laughs> teaching that that power belongs to people and people can you know, be part of making media and making culture themselves. Um, mm -hmm. And that seems very, important, but that also means like really believing in small press work as, as a DIY endeavor. Um, I wanted to ask you kind of about like one point of, of sort of difference um, in, in current conversations around publishing. Um, and I really appreciate in those essays, you talk about, you make a really powerful case for an ethics of volunteerism and amateurism mm -hmm. and for volunteerism as a political activity. Um, and I was thinking, you know, more recently in small press literary culture, there's more of a trend toward, um, you know, paying the writer kind of, um, mm -hmm. and even very small uh, organizations kind of try to pay writers for their contributions and frame, you know, writing as work for which people as workers should be paid. Um, 
And I think of that as like, okay, publishing a, a poem in a literary magazine maybe would pay you like $25 or a hundred bucks or something, you know, kind of in that range. Right. Um, and I definitely like see the reasoning for that. Um, I mean, especially in our pretty de devastating current economic situation, right. People are caught up in student debt. There's no affordable healthcare <laughs> rents are rising. The adjectification of everything is underway. So it's like hard to feel like you're ever getting paid a fair wage. And so I can see particularly the appeal of being like, I'm going to get paid for this work that's meaningful, that's valuable, that's part of um, a community and, you know, an ecosystem that I'm part of. Um, but I end up with this kind of unresolved set of practical considerations kind of as a publisher whenever I think about it, because I'm like, okay, like if I'm as a writer, I'm paid 50 bucks for a poem or a short review that's nice, but it doesn't actually sustain my work or help me write the next piece because it's just not enough. It probably took me like, I don't know, 10 to 50 or hundred hours <laughs> to write those pieces. So that amount of money is kind of immaterial to that effort. But the literary magazine could definitely use the 500 to $1,000 that it's paying its writers to put out the next issue, right? So that amount of money is very valuable on the other side, right? It matters a lot. Um, and so I get kind of stuck there where I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> I think like if I can get paid a thousand dollars for a piece, that's great because it might actually help me like not take another freelance job or not teach another class, et cetera. But if it's less than that, then I kind of feel like the magazine itself is the work that the press or the organization is, is offering or something that that's <laughs> the work that it's doing. Um, so, and I also, you know, like like you, I think, as you describe in those pieces, I have some resistance to thinking of my writing as labor that I'm selling on the market. Like I want to just be like, no, I wrote this because I wanted to write it. Um, <laughs> it's like funny if you want to pay me or like, I don't know, like there's a little bit more freedom there. Um, so I was just kind of wondering if you could talk a little bit about those ideas of volunteerism and amateurism. And um, if you have thoughts on those sort of current conversations about paying writers or writing as work, um, just how you think about those economics. Yeah, that's a, a great question. I mean, um, oh, I, where to start? <clears throat> um, yeah, I too tend to think of my writing, uh, my own writing as not something that I'm really selling. Um, and the support that I get from small presses that or magazines that might publish my work, um, I'm happy for them. I, I'm I would be happy for them to keep the money, and if it's so small, because they're going to you know publish other people, and they're they're doing something really important that they definitely definitely don't have enough resources for. Um, I think the vol volunteerism on the side of the publisher, which, you know, often gets taken for granted in the case of, um, you know, especially like the very small presses that are run by one or two people, um, is, is, uh, is problematic, but also has something to do with the, the chosen kind of kind of work that they're doing and the, the ethos. I mean, most small press publishers aren't thinking of publishing as a full-time job because there's nobody to pay their salary, one, and secondly, because they're doing it 
as an additional contribution to the literary culture. Um, uh, I, I'm in a situation where now I work for a press that pays me a small, a modest salary um, for poetry books, uh, which is um, not a, a not a big nonprofit, but um, I, I, it's not my press. I didn't start it. Um, um, but I'm also starting my own little press called Winter Editions, and that is just my own private personal project. Um, and I am paying my authors uh, based on this sort of local, based on feasible royalties. Or I'm probably paying more than the book will ever sell, but um, in some cases, but it seems right. Um, and um, but I don't think of it of this kind of work that I'm I'm taking on myself. I, I elected to take it on. Um, I'm I'm thinking of it as a kind of you know what I can do on a weekend, the way I could go to a protest, or the way that I could uh, volunteer in a in a in a political organization, uh, or hand out leaflets um, for whatever party I might want to hand out leaflets for. Um, and uh, and th that that makes it valuable to me in a very different way, right? Um, of course, I want to do a good job for my salaried editing position, and I'm lucky enough to be editing books that I believe in. Uh, it's all poetry and translation. So that in itself is kind of like, a, you know, uh, a, a cause. <laughs> um, and uh, but but I, I think I have to approach it differently from something that I've starting myself and, and um, where I'm choosing what I do and um, making all the decisions I, uh, that are up to me to make. Um, and in a way, by volunteering that energy, I, I am laying claim to an, not only an autonomy, but also an authenticity. Uh, to uh, those books. Um, I, I think that's a obviously a, a difficult word, but uh, uh, but I think it is in play in some way um, with with small press uh, activity uh, in the sense that um, there is no uh, financial gain in as a prospect for you know what what I can do is you know, in a small press situation like the one I've started, um, uh, there is uh, something else. There's just it's it's a it's it's an it's uh, it's a little bit more like my own writing in that sense. Um, um, but I also, you know, I think the conversation around the wage and 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 labor, I, I just, I feel like it doesn't work in our system. We don't have a system that pays artists to be artists. Um, if we lived in a William Morris type utopia or um, something like that, um, we might we might see something like a universal wage for artists just to be, do what they do and maybe take out the trash sometimes. But, um, or sweep the street, but um, uh, or or see some kind of um, 
uh, way of valuing artistic labor um, uh, from you know in a different way, and it doesn't have to be in this sort of like making a living way, uh, but in uh, um, in the structure we have now, it doesn't quite make sense to me to think of everything as monetizable. Um, and I, in fact, I think that the monetizing of labor in the small press context, context de, sort of diffuses its power, um, takes away this feeling that you're doing it not for any other reason, <laughs> but for more loving doing it or wanting to do it or making a claim of aesthetics or politics for a certain kind of literature. Um, and uh, I, I, it's not that I think that every, you know, everyone doing some kind of work for a small press shouldn't be paid. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll be paying copy editors and uh, designer and um, someone to help me with publicity and mailings and things and that that is work but I, it, it, in the context of my own small press uh, I'm not going to be paying myself um, in fact I'll be probably taking whatever I earn teaching and teaching gigs to put into it and that's just the I, I think that reality needs to be kind of acknowledged that, that there aren't the resources and I, I think that you know it's you know, what does Poetry Foundation pay to put some of these poem on their website and get all the rights to use it wherever they want and so forth? It is so minuscule. Uh, the publisher gets a little, the author gets a little, but the power goes to the purchaser. Um, and, uh, and those fees are very small in my experience. So, and they're probably, although I don't have evidence, but I would bet on the fact that they are, that those fees are larger for FSG than for action books or something, right? So if you want to, um, you know, uh, if the Poetry Foundation wants to use in perpetuity a poem from uh, an edition from a mainstream press, they're going to pay more for those rights. Um, so I mean, if we had sort of like an equal pay system, I don't know, like uh, we could we could then start to talk about um, how nonprofits uh, have to conform to that. But um, my feeling is that it, none of this, you know, work that is taken on work to make money should be paid you know if i have a publicity assistant that needs a job i'm going to pay them but if it's work that's taken on for a different reason i don't think that they're that institutions larger institutions should demand that those people be paid i think that you know like the nea uh, and niska or new york state council on the arts or you know other arts um, other um state um arts granting institutions, they want to see that your labor, that everybody is being paid in the organization because also that increases the support that they can give, um, the, you know, raises the limit on what they can grant. 
but the truth is that so many small presses don't operate that way and um and the books still come out and uh, they need money for the production they need money for this and that but they don't they're not expecting to and they don't necessarily want to pay themselves or maybe it's a collective and et cetera, et cetera. I fought very hard at EDP for continuing this idea of uh, an editorial collective that is unpaid. Um, I think that's still the case, um, but but I think as soon as money enters into it, it's really confusing, like who gets paid for what and um, is volunteer labor, uh, is there any kind of contract for volunteer labor? No everything that a volunteer does belongs to the organization they volunteer for by law so that's the, that's a problem that could be addressed um uh volunteers are really the the pump the heart of like of small press ventures um even if they're just volunteers that come to help you sell books at a reading or um uh Put up some posters or or read a or do a proofread or something like that um and uh and i think there should be a convert more of a conversation around what the, what uh that kind of what kind of those hours mean for an organization how are they respected how are they rewarded if not if they're not paid um uh what does it mean to have um decision-making power in an organization and what is uh like how how does volunteer time relate to creative freedom in some way right that that that's what's interesting to me that in a small press context usually what it, what volunteering means you you if you're an if you started your own press you get to decide what you publish and how the cover looks and wh whatever uh that's sort of the the trade-off right you're not working for a corporation you're not you're a marketing a marketing department isn't telling you what to put on the cover of the book and uh and you're claiming a certain kind of authority by doing so um and that authority is in part related uh to the volunteering um it is a, it is related to and and that volunteering should be seen in some ways as um i don't know i, I think that there could be structures that we create just like wage uh the the idea of uh wage which um um has been very popular in the art world that that organization um setting kind of like well if you have this kind of budget as an art arts institution, then you should be paying this much for uh, readers honoraria or something. And it turns out most even tiny nonprofits do that kind of thing. But there should also be something that protects the volunteers, <laughs> um, that gives them equal stake, for instance, in 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 an organization's um, um, I don't know what to call it. Uh, I don't want to say net worth, you know, but um, uh, that isn't diminished in some way just because it's their labor isn't paid. Um, so I, I don't know. It's it. I I think these conversations are important to have. I I don't, but I don't see how. Like I I think that there is a certain way that 
very small nonprofits and very small presses that might not be nonprofit because they aren't even corporations or anything. I don't feel that they should be pressured to take on corporate uh, structures. Um, that's that's like the, the my main problem with this this thing is that I, I feel or like a kind of thread that runs through this is that I, I feel very strongly that the reason we exist, this, these small the small presses and independent presses really like, well, the smaller ones um, is to have different kinds of structures, uh, have different kinds of values in the way that we structure ourselves. And so, um, and to uh, foster those values and to promote those values to others, we need to also have autonomy to decide how we pay who we pay, when we pay, <laughs> if we pay, um, and and whoever wants to work in that kind of structure will work in it, and if they don't, they don't. Um, so it, it seems to me like a very top to bottom kind of like, again, like I don't want someone at the level of a poetry foundation or the NEA telling a tiny press how to, how to who to pay and when to pay and, and, and how much because that has very their ideas have very little to do with what's on the ground and they often push small presses into situations which for that that create uh, distress and uh, financial burden that they cannot uh, carry uh, so I'd rather have a small press not fold because they're pressured by these things than uh, than have them pay fifty bucks to an author uh, for a few poems. Um, who should be paying fifty bucks to the author for those few poems? Well, it could be the state. It could be the larger institutions that rely on those journals to then uh, call from them their anthologies and so forth. And you know that there are there are others that could could and should pay i think for for artistic labor um the universities that bring them to read and so forth right like as we talked about um i could see i could see hundreds of poets making a bit of something toward a living wage if our educational system were different um uh, and it wasn't just about like, well, which big name can we get for ten to fifty thousand dollars, you know, to 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 speak to our students? Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's enough for that. Sorry, <laughs> that was kind of a spiel. No, I, I loved that answer. Um, it's interesting to hear you talk about, like, to hear to to hear you talk about that like funding level stuff and like why um like why that ethic of like volunteerism you know would be meaningful you know in that it would have a it, it i think it's true it has some effect on like the aesthetic that then comes out you know um in ways that like may not be immediately obvious right from just like uh it's not like a X amount of funding from this source equals like this on the output, right? It's there's a lot more that goes into it. Um, I'm I'm interested in hearing about that just because I mean I like I I do work for um, a literary magazine right now that's like we're very fortunate to be able to pay 
some part-time staff and then to be able to pay contributors. And we're having this sort of like little bit of an identity crisis where, you know, a lot of people are interested in like pursuing grant funding and it's like, that's cool. But like, do you want to, do you want to like manage grants or do you want to make a journal? Um, you know, I, I feel like a little bit of a curmudgeon sometimes because I feel like I'm, it's not like I don't want, I don't believe in that like nonprofit model or something, but it's like, what wasn't there value in being like an autonomous pirate ship? And we, we do whatever we want and we don't have to answer to whoever. Right. Um, beyond just like the administrative burden of, you know, what that would actually take to do correctly and like also not go to jail. So I guess, I don't know. I just, I, I think that's such a like, like crucial distinction to make. And I think like, yeah, I, 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 I like that. Like for me, that's where the, it's not like, it's not like being anti-professional or something, but it's, it's where that as a stance actually has, um, you know, value. It's not just like trying to save work or something. It's actually trying to, yeah, not have to answer <laughs> like to anyone. Um, but I'm, I'm also curious because I'm like, I know like for my part, um, you know, we talked about like adjunctification and, you know, some of these other things that are like big, big factors here. Like I'm, I'm looking at all this from like a very sort of ad adjunctified <laughs> location in the world right now. Um, you know, I do like four different jobs. Some are teaching, some are editing, um, whatever, you know, and I'm, and I'm glad to do that. I'm happy to do it. And I feel really lucky that like, I get to do work that I not only enjoy and feel good at, but like also believe in. Um, and I guess I wonder though, you know, like the other side of it is like, like the only, the only gift that one can um, expect, you know, the only reward is or the, you know, whatever the best possible reward is just more, right. It's just more of the same, like the reward for uh, continuing is just to like getting to do more work um, in that, like at that sort of level or whatever, um, which strikes me as like kind of a, that's a condition of, you know, if one wants to have a sort of like volunteerist attitude toward their own labor, then, you know, you may have to come up with other ways of like getting paid, you know, in, in other ways or whatever. So I guess like, that's just, if, if it's a complicated formula, it's different for everyone, but um, I wonder I would just be interested to hear you talk about like what what kind of keeps you going <laughs> in that space, right? Because it's not just like, yeah, like there are there are politics involved here that are sort of activated by like the processes um, of what we do and how we're doing it and what we hope the output of this like literary cultural production will be and what that will mean for other people. Um, but almost in more of like a you know, a personal way, like how, what, what keeps you continuing to do the work, you know, cause it's not money. Uh, well, I guess, yeah. Um, thank you. Um, I mean, I, I think I, I did want to say something about amateurism or <laughs> this not anti-professional kind of mode. Um, but, um, I mean, what keeps me going and I think maybe 
I don't know if it's similar for other people in the small press world, but it is a kind of antagonism, right? A kind of, uh, I, I, I want to do something different and possibly antagonistic to the structures that I see as homogenizing and um, kind of profiting from mythology or, or, I don't know, but various ways of, and, and, and profiting off a value system of an aesthetic value system that um, sort of um, um, decreases access, uh, as I think Hillary was saying, you know, to actually being involved in literary production. Uh, so um, um, I'm, you know, what, what does Mallarmé say? Something like, uh, you know, I must be an anarchist because I, 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 um, I make a product that society doesn't, uh, doesn't need, and does not remunerate me for. Um, um, it's because I want to do something that is, <laughs> that nobody needs, nobody wants. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I guess like if something happened and suddenly my, you know, the books I published were in every bookstore, I would have to rethink this. But I, <laughs> um, um, but I don't know. I think of Dick Higgins, uh, who obviously had like a kind of a trust fund situation, publishing something else press in the '60s and early '70s, um, and uh, and going bankrupt doing it. But um, uh, you know the way that that actually those books they didn't end up in every bookstore, but he made books that are in many libraries that have uh, in a lot of ways affected the course of uh, art and art history and uh, literature republished Gertrude Stein that hadn't been published in a long time and all kinds of ways that he affected that something else press affected the culture uh, brought fluxus to a very large readership uh, from a very amateur beginning right um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think and, and was in constant antagonism with with the, the larger distribution networks, with uh, with uh, the, the the structures that empower the larger presses and so forth. Um, and I don't know. I I, I think that it's. You know, I I, uh, I know that the commercial model isn't going to allow me to publish the things I want to publish. It's really simple, right? Um, uh, the books that I've edited, whether for Ugly Duckling or even right now, I, I'm you know, World Poetry Books is a nonprofit which luckily has a donor that gives enough for us to pub print some books. And um, and in some university support and this and that and could get donations, but the books themselves won't cover the bills for sure uh, because poetry and translation doesn't sell very well as it turns out. Um, and 
and it, it they it, that's why it's up to small presses to do it because commercial presses just won't take on those kinds of projects. Um, um, I I think that there is I'm trying to find a way to talk about this thing that Hillary suggested about the kind of amateur impulse and you know it's just I think not you know that if you're not getting paid for it by definition you are an amateur um, or at least you're not doing it professionally right so um, um, but I find that like I'm I'm interested in the literature published by small presses. I'm interested in literature that doesn't get published by commercial presses that I want to publish, or that I would like to see published. And um, I think that the only way that that can happen in this country is through amateur efforts, um, whether they're nonprofit or not, or whatever. Um, that that can and and it is I think truly a way for uh, aesthetics uh, you know like a lot of this has to do with the judgment around you know what is a good book what is good literature what is good poetry and when you have uh, a publishing a, a mainstream publishing world that is basically like still in the thralls of new criticism like how are you going to you know trust that judgment <laughs> I, I i can't trust that judgment i can't trust that judgment about what is a good translation i can't trust that judgment about what is good poetry because what i see coming out of the mainstream presses is criminal often not not just bad like it it is a is it is it is a disservice to the literary art and it is like a kind of, I think, an ethical just, you know, problem. <laughs> like bad literature is harmful. <laughs> uh, it's banal. It makes you feel like uh, talked down to. It, it, it is. Uh, it closes down possibilities. It, it reinforces terrible uh, values of our system of, of capitalism or of what, what you know. It's just so many ways. <laughs> the that that it's 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 terribly it's disheartening to say the least and so other people some people outside of that system only other people only people outside of that system can come up with aesthetic uh solutions uh that um and and interestingly that is linked to where you know to the context in which they are published you cannot do it you cannot subvert that uh, aesthetic program of, of you know, of good poetry of good translation from uh, is maybe it can happen sometimes at a university press, but for the most part, I think as far as new writing goes, it has to happen from from the margins, as they say, or from uh, from you know, with the support of amateur publishers. It's, it just doesn't happen any other way, I think. I mean, that cool. said, obviously there are some really interesting books. I don't know if you, if you, you know, you want to read 
theory, like you could go to some larger presses that do important work decolonializing or, you know, whether it's Moten or Sadia Hartman or whatever. Obviously, those people are going to be published by some bigger presses. I don't, the sales numbers are, I don't know. They're, they're really, you know, for a very intellectual audience. Uh, so it's not like they're, um, they're really affecting the market. Uh, but um, but they you know they, they have some power and that there's there's some possibility there but somehow that doesn't usually correspond in terms of uh, poetry translation um, the bulk of the interesting work is not in, in the commercial sphere um, and university presses don't actually sell a lot of books um, so. <laughs> Or they sell them at $75 only to libraries. So, <laughs> um, uh, so that knowledge circulation becomes very sort of solipsistic or you know narrow. And and uh, and I'm, you know, that's why the DIY or whatever the, the sort of anarchic or other kinds of um, publishing models are are have this potential of reaching beyond uh, those very elite university circles. Um, I don't know if that <laughs> that might have been not an answer to your question. <laughs> I think it was a perfect answer. No, thanks. I yeah, I, I love I love everywhere that 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 went <laughs> for sure. I loved too that that the answer was antagonism. <laughs> yeah, <That's> great, uh, <laughs> especially like. Um, I mean, we were talking before the, before the recording began about, about your new chapbook, Dead Winter, and I was just like, the first poem in it ends with just, you know, they say you can't edit poetry, but I say, fuck it. <laughs> and I was like, um, that nicely, you know, like teased or aligned with that, you know, with that answer of like, why well, keep going? Just antagonism, <laughs> just, just fuck it. Um, well, maybe we'll bother you with one more question that I know yeah, that you've been no, very generous in staying. I, no, with I us. love it. <laughs> like, let's just keep talking. <laughs> um, and the question that I have is like, maybe stems from my own uh, newly discovered interest in middle age, uh, <laughs> which is, um, and it's one I wish kind of people were asked more as a like looking back and looking forward of just like, I wonder if you could talk about kind of what you're most what you're most proud of. Um, at UDP or of having, you know, gotten to be part of in, in these kind of decades of writing and translating and editing and publishing, if there are moments that stand out to you. I know you've talked about some already, but there are things that you're like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm most proud of um, or that feels sustaining to have been part because of. Because I'm never satisfied, but um, <laughs> I, um, yeah, I'm proud of some translations the harms book and some my contribution to the alexander videnski book um, um and i'm very excited to hear from people that those are on their shelves and they read them and um i think more perhaps more proud of those than my own work as a poet because I, you know it's like every every time you feel like oh, I, need to do something different or better or something but <clears throat> um yeah i think i'm i'm really glad that i i, I don't know uh 
I guess I'm proud that I was able to start a press from scratch with Ugly Duckling with a few friends and a little pocket money and make it grow into something that people know and recognize. Um, and I'm very proud of some of the stuff I'm doing with World Poetry as an editor. I, I love these books. I, I think we're doing really important work, uh, though maybe not many people will see it. Um, and at least these books will be out there. And um, uh, I kind of, I guess I'm I'm very happy that that the research that I did for and thinking that I did for those Harriet essays has had some resonance with others in the publishing field or other you know writers. Um, but um, you know, it's not it's a never ending antagonistic battle. So uh, I can't like I don't have, feel like I have any laurels to rest on really. So <laughs> and and why rest um, anyway? So I don't know. I I'm it's you know really fascinating to me. To, like I think when I apply when I applied to SPD twenty some years ago as Ugly Duckling Press, you know, we were trying to get distributed. I think the process, I can't remember for sure, but I'm now applying to SPD for this new press I'm starting and the application is totally different. Marketing documents, uh, budget documents, um, all kinds of things I don't have in place yet <laughs> as, as I'm just starting out. Um, and again, building something from scratch. So um, it's just that it feels like a really different world um, uh, from from back then. Um, and uh, it's full of new challenges, <laughs> some of which I feel like, do I even want to participate in them? I'm not totally sure, um, but I, I don't know. I think it's like I, I, I owe it to my authors to try to do X and Y to make to make this sort of again like to create a professional face. Um, but I'm really yearning for a you know just a connecting with a community of readers that find the work valuable, and I don't really want to jump through all the hoops. Um, it's not like I have a I can come up with a budgeting plan or, or that you know where I make money or uh, like a, a sheet that shows me in the black you know and then um, and it's not like I can come up with a marketing plan as a small press knowing all of the structural imbalances to put it mildly that will get the book into every bookstore and whatever so. Um, and get more than a few reviews and so forth. So I don't know. It's it's a very it's a it's a weird position to be in. Speaking of middle age, you know, like yes, I have all this experience, and I I have some things I guess I could be proud of. But uh, even trying to get a publisher for a translation I'm working on uh, for a long time now has proved difficult because I have a different maybe because of my translation politics. 
um, because of what I think is the right way to go about it that is different from how the, the author I'm translating has been translated in the past, um, has been lionized by mainstream publishing culture, canonized and so forth. So I'm there enacting like an antagonistic translation. My partner, my co-translation, my co-translator and I, I think are doing a kind of revisionist historical revisionist translation that gives us a different view, but it's, it's there's a lot of antagonism toward that kind of thing in the publishing world. Um, and uh, and I think, you know, it's, but but I, I don't know, I, I, I don't think I would be happy not, not, to, not engaging in that fight, you know, like, what am I gonna, you know, I'm not gonna, I mean, my, in terms of my writing, I, I can't do anything, but also be antagonistic in some way. Uh, and really also thinking about middle age and uh, that the, the poems I've been writing recently and Dead Winter and others in that series are really kind of trying to address this very unpopular kind of space or problematic set of um, of, um, of themes related to obsolescence and uh, um, not being the, the the new kid on the block and all of that, um, but yeah, in terms of our our conversation, I think you know, yes, I'm I could be proud of having you know done some of these things and created a, a publishing house that is still going and and will hopefully prosper uh, with uh, um, with others' guidance and I I think. But but entering now in you know like into sort of um, trying to to do things the way I believe in doing them you know like the the kind of small press that I want to make it's I think really hard right now um, uh, and um, uh, I see it with a lot of newer presses that right away that the, they have to appear um, professionalized in some way. And um, I don't know. I don't think it's, I think it's, it's it, it feels a little bit um, uh, like the spirit of antagonism that I, I remember reading the SPD catalog, you know, when it was print in like 99 or 2005 even i think it was still print and just like being excited about being in this marginal catalog you know and like it's sort of like if i were a zine maker still like i would be excited about it. like the way i was excited about fact sheet five which covered all the zines in the, in the 90s you know and like you just felt like you were part of a community that was separate and 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 different and like had its values and had uh, had no no truck with the institutions that purport to uh, decide you know like decide for us what what is valuable it just was like a different thing and um, 
and maybe it's is it nostalgia i don't know i i don't think it's nostalgia it's more of like i um i think it's like that the, the position of small presses in, in like researching stuff in the 70s and so forth like there was a real um there were some some of the same problems existed some of the same distribution issues and so forth but there were so many initiatives to collect and um, uh, really like kind of collectivize uh, and harness the kind of power of numbers of small presses um, that was really that that gives me a kind of I don't know energy to think about <coughs> how this kind of thing could be could still be done and um, but I'm also like feeling like I'm a little too old to start there you know <laughs> to like I don't know start a uh, I don't know, like a distribution company that's that's that does this kind of like different thing, or you know, it, it's it, in the end, like maybe that too would succumb to the funding and market pressures, right? Um, so it's like I don't know, it's just this starting out and feeling like whatever. How to how to actually maintain this smallness is still is an incredible challenge and more so even than than it used to be, um, and to forge communities outside of kind of institutional control is like it's it's getting really difficult. Um, so I want to hear from like I want to just hopefully I think I'm seeing this among my students and uh, younger writers that there is some. Uh, desire to create something different, but uh, I also like now being a little older, <laughs> I see how many, how difficult that will be for them, and um, uh, and especially in, in 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 where we are now. You know, so um, anyway, so I don't know. That's both my hopeful and pessimistic <laughs> conclusion. Thank you. I mean, I, I I loved it, and I think that my middle-aged question deserved also like that a question about what you know what one is proud of or pride becomes the question about just like going on in the same problems or questions um, with even more like realism, uh, and also just kind of I was thinking, you know, when you were talking, about, I was like, okay, like what if we just continue to be obsolescent, like haven't become obsolescent. What if we just <laughs> keep going? Um, and I, I was feeling like, oh, that's a question about the book itself in a way, you know, like, like a print book circulating. It's not obsolescent, but it's, it's shimmering. It's getting there. And you're like, but what if it just continued to be obsolescent <laughs> um, and kept doing that? Yeah. Um, just one little aside, but uh, I remember when I was I was writing this article a year ago about Dick Higgins or about something else press, and came across some really interesting uh, notions in, in in around 1970 of articles about the end of the book and the <laughs> like how computers will replace the book and so forth and <laughs> it's, it's really funny the anxiety of that like coming like I you know the, all the panels at AWP about what will happen to the book and so forth 10 years ago and <laughs> so it's just like a recurring uh 
uh, anxiety. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was I was like, what is the final the final AWP? There will still be what will happen to them anyway. Um, well, Mafe, thank you so much for joining us um, and for uh, sharing your reflections uh, and calls into antagonism with us. Uh, and we'll we'll post a lot of links to all of your work and to the new press. Um, and we'll look forward to being in touch. Thank you. Hopefully I have a website up by then. It's <laughs> <laughs> also one of the things that SBU requires. I'm like, well, I have a domain, but I don't have a website. If not, we can post like a picture of the name. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's a hard, it'll be a hard to find small press probably. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you. Thanks for taking the time and for talking and thanks for I don't know. Uh, it's really exciting to, um, I don't know, just feel like these these questions are still important to people. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Okay, take care. Okay, See you. In touch. That was great. I'm going to stop the recording. Cool. Does that make sense?